It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Stocks for beginners. A lot of CEOs want to put their mark on the company or put their mark on the market and they want to become famous and they want to do something big in their industry. So, yeah, they go looking for things to buy because they want to make their company bigger. They want to grow it instead of holistically, naturally, by getting more people to buy their stuff. They want to buy another company and just add those revenues and boost it to their current bottom line. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello, and to the first fresh episode for 2022. And I'm hoping that it's going to be a good year for all of our listeners. And I'm pleased to welcome back Lawrence Carroll, who's been a previous guest on the podcast. Hi, Larry. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me back on. So Lawrence is a finance and investing journalist and contributor to publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Barron's, Hard Assets, and many others. So just before we get started, I know that you pitch ideas for your stories. So what are some of the themes you think you're going to be pitching this year? Well, always stocks and bonds are a big thing, but um, I think the main topics this year are going to be cryptocurrencies and whether Bitcoin recovers or whether it you know, has a major crash. And then cannabis stocks, which I think people have been waiting for them to do something after their big move up a couple of years ago. So I think that those will be big areas. And then, of course, ETFs, which I cover a lot of. There's always new ETFs coming out. The industry is growing. More people are getting into it. And you've got areas like, you know, climate change and ESG. So a lot of very specific niche-like ideas are coming out. So that's pretty much what I see happening. What do you think about these niche idea ETFs? Are they just marketing exercises or is there actually a consumer demand from them, in your opinion? Um, no, (laughs) I think a lot of these ideas come from traders or trading firms. They go, we would like an ETF like this. And so they go to an ETF firm and then those guys make it. So is that investor demand? I guess so. But is there a broad investor demand? No, I think a lot of companies can have the exact same mutual fund idea, whether it's an S&P 500 index or a biotechnology fund or a technology fund. But with ETFs, they have a thing called first mover advantage because once a fund comes out, it sort of gains all of the assets and all the attention that a fund with the exact same idea that comes out afterwards is always a second rant. It's very hard for that fund to pick up a lot of steam and overcome the first one. It's happened a few times, but not very often. And um, while every mutual fund company can come out with an S&P 500 index fund, there's only two companies in the ETF world that have S&P 500 index funds because the first one, the spider, is so huge that people just gravitate to it. And then there's another one for my shares, which might be a little cheaper and actually be a little better, but a spider gets all the attention. So it's very hard for a second firm to come out and cover an index that's already tracked. And that's the other thing. Most of the ETFs are indexes, so an index is pretty rigid. And why would I buy your index or the other index? I'm just going to buy the cheaper one. And so these guys have to create new ideas, either like um, 
interesting ways to manage gold. And um, there's one coming out that's a climate change ETF. And then ESG is a big thing in that um, people are trying to get this environmental, social, and governance factors to determine I want to be more socially responsible. So each one of those can differentiate in a certain way. But other than that, you have to come up with something totally new to gain any kind of audience. And a lot of them are just, I don't want to say wacky, but they're wacky and they have a very limited appeal. I think they're trying to catch the immediate zeitgeist. There was a work from home one last year. So I think personally, my personal investment style was to stick with core ideas. You know, indexes, you know, that have worked and that represent the market, like the S&P, the Russell 2000, the um, MSCI, EFA. you know, you want to grab um, developed market exposure or emerging market exposure. I like to go for the main funds unless there's something that comes out that's really, you know, creatively better than what the original is. Hmm. So of course, Larry, I, I follow you on Twitter. So this is where I get some of the links to your stories and we'll put your Twitter handle at the end of the episode if anyone else wants to follow you. But um, you write for Forbes and there was a couple of interesting articles. And the first one that I wanted to discuss was about cannabis stocks. What gets people so excited about cannabis stocks? Um, it's a growth industry. People feel like they can get in at the bottom and there's potential to make a lot of money because there's a lot of growth out there, a lot of potential growth and a lot of things that haven't opened up the industry yet that should really break it open to make a lot more money, such as legalizing it in the U.S. nationally. Mm. So it's got a lot of problems, this sector. Funding is especially a problem. Why is funding a problem? Well, the big first one is that even though individual states in the United States have um, legalized it, the broad federal government still considers it a class one narcotic. So, you know, there's conceivably risk. You could be legal business in California selling marijuana and still get busted by the feds. So there's that. And then the big thing that's really a problem for them is that the federal drug laws make national banks very leery of um, dealing with the uh, cannabis companies. They don't want to give them money. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to be at risk of, you know, funding criminal enterprises. And banks are notoriously conservative, so they don't want to give money. And in fact, the um, Congress tried to fix that situation, but wasn't able to last year. Mm. So 2021 was a bad year for cannabis stocks in general, though. That's one of the points of this report that uh, you expressed. Well, and another thing about that, you can't get funding from banks, you know, they don't have enough capital to grow, is that institutional investors are staying away. And the other thing is, is that most of the big cannabis companies are Canadian companies because it's legal in Canada. So they're not really selling to the U.S. market because it's very hard to sell to the U.S. market. It's very hard to import it into the U.S. And so they're doing some global sales. But in general, it's a very small market. And it had its big spike when Canada legalized it. So you've got a lot of um, smaller companies that are trading over the counter. So they're tiny. And they're illiquid. You know, and they're having a hard time getting capital. I mean, they have stocks, so they're getting it from there. But institutional investors aren't allowed to invest in over-the-counter stocks. And they're not allowed to invest in stocks that could be you know, potentially federally criminal. So they are avoiding them. And without that kind of big influx of money, you're not going to see a lot of um, price moves. You need capital to push stocks higher, and institutions are the major source of capital in the stock. The report's from a company called Viridian, isn't it? Yes. 
They're a very small investment bank in New York that focuses on the cannabis industry. And that's all they do. It's just cannabis. That's the only thing that they invest in. Yeah. And they've been doing it since 2014. They work primarily with private companies raising capital and providing M&A advisory assistance. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what a company like this is and does? It's an investment bank, you know, because we're talking to beginners in the stock market at the moment. And these kind of companies and organizations are a big part of what happens on Wall Street. This particular kind of bank, what is it and what does it do? It's an investment bank. And what they do is they give money and financing and help companies raise capital, either through selling stock or selling loans, you know, which are called bonds and um, opening up to the capital markets to get investors into them. So these guys are bringing small multi-state operators in the cannabis industry public to the market so that investors can invest in them, but they're tiny companies and they're trading on the -the over-the-counter markets, which are not regulated as strictly as the um, NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange are. And they don't get nearly as much trading volume. So they can be often a liquid stocks. It's hard to get in and hard to get out at a good price. And they're just inherently risky because they're small. You know, to get on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, you have to hit certain criteria. You have to trade above a certain level. You have to have a certain number of, you know, years of earnings and revenues. And these guys don't satisfy that. So they're riskier companies. But they're bringing these small companies together. And they're also doing mergers and acquisitions between them. You mentioned M&As, which is mergers and acquisitions. What does that mean? Buying companies. A bigger company swallowing up a smaller company. Would that be the case? Most of the time, but sometimes you get a smaller one, you know, biting off more can chew. (laughs) Okay, an acquisition is a company buying another company. We are owning you and that you're going to become part of us entirely. And then a merger is you're bringing the two companies together, whereas in an acquisition, usually the executives leave and they don't have anything to do with the new company. In a merger, executives usually stay and staff usually stays. So you have more of um, looking for synergies there and as opposed to just, you know, we want your assets, but we don't want you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Company CEOs often need to do something. They're in the job, the business is growing, and they've got capital to deploy. So they can either buy back shares and increase shareholder value, or they can make acquisitions to grow the company as well. And sometimes these acquisitions don't work out. In fact, often they don't work out. How do you see the mergers and acquisitions business and CEOs using us as one of the levers that they can pull? Oh, don't forget dividends. They could give the money back to their investors. And dividends as well. That's right. (laughs) And you've written the book on dividends. Yes. So one of the nice things about investing in a company that pays dividends is that typically it's a mature company and um, they don't need to make these big mergers and acquisition investments to grow the company. And they realize that at a certain state of their development that they should pay back the 
you know, stockholders and give them dividends. And usually they sometimes increase dividends every year. And those are the ones you want to buy anyways. Mergers and acquisitions. Yes, a lot of CEOs want to put their mark on the company or put their mark on the market and they want to become famous and they want to do something big in their industry. So, yeah, they go looking for things to buy because they want to make their company bigger. They want to grow it instead of holistically, naturally, by getting more people to buy their stuff. They want to buy another company and just add those revenues and boost it to their current down bottom line. So one of the biggest failures was AT&T buying Warner Media a couple of years ago. And they thought, well, you know, we're a big telecommunications company. We need content. We buy Warner. We'll have content to stream over all of our networks. And that way we don't have to buy content from Disney or buy content from all these other people. And we'll have it in-house and it'll be a lot cheaper for us. So we'll make quote unquote synergies there by using our own product and sending it to our, our clients. Well, that was a lot of hubris. And for whatever reason, they couldn't make it work. And so the C, they ended up breaking it apart last year, complete failure. So all the money, the millions, the hundred millions of dollars they had spent buying Warner were a complete waste of shareholder value. So the shareholders didn't get anything for their money, for their profits. And uh, they're pretty much back where they were at scratch one. And instead, AT&T could have taken that money and pushed up their share price by buying back their own stock or they could have given it back to the shareholders and rewarding them for being their investors. And dividends are basically that. You know, you're getting rewarded by sticking with the company. And um, companies that pay good dividends don't have too many of these crazy mergers and acquisitions because the people in the C-suites need to justify their existence by doing something. And getting back to investment banks, this is where a lot of investment banks make a lot of money from as well. It's probably 50% of where they make money from. So they're job is, you know, sometimes companies will come to them and say, I want to grow, find me some candidates that would be good for merging with me. And then sometimes an investment bank will go, so-and-so looks like they're up for sale, and they'll go to one of their clients, we think you should buy them. So investment banks is how they make money. That's part of how the capital markets work, is constantly moving things around. So that's a big part of their business. The other part is to raise capital for the company either by selling stock to investors or selling bonds to um, people who are loaning them money. So the next article I'd like to explore is titled Astrology Fund Predicts Correction in 2022. It says to sell stocks, buy gold. And this reminds me of the quote from the great economist J.K. Galbraith, who said the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. Tell us about the Astrologers Fund and Henry Weingarten, who runs it in the newsletter. The Astrologers Fund was a hedge fund for many years. And after the uh, fiscal crisis, he changed it to a family office. And I don't know all the details about that, but that's what's happened there. Anyways, at the end of the year, investment banks and financial firms, they come out with their global outlooks to show how good they see the market and why you should invest with them. And so it's a pretty common thing that at the end of the year, everybody comes out with their global outlook. So Henry Weingarten came out with a global outlook at the hedge fund. And what he did was, 
he uses a little bit of fundamental analysis and a lot of technical analysis. And then he would do an overlay of astrology on top of it, look at the stars. And he would actually, you know, take companies and markets and indexes and put them into some kind of formula that he looked at the stars. And he would come up with broader predictions from that. And he also looks at what are general themes in astrology, you know, like Mercury rising themes that are well known that cause changes in the um, the stars and the structure and the, uh, you know, the atmosphere around Earth. The universal vibes. <laughs> yeah, universal vibe and, you know, the age of Aquarius and all that. And that's what he does. And so he came out with a prediction. He had his outlook and I wrote that up at the end of uh, last month. And so far, he's been pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say he predicted the crash in 2020, but when it came out, this was his prediction at the end of 2019. In 2020, we're going to have a debt crisis and geopolitical uncertainty, and he saw two crashes of 10% each. So there was one crash of 30%. So, you know, you can't call these things perfectly, but the fact that he anticipated a major downturn in 2020 and a debt crisis, it was a debt crisis, and geopolitical uncertainty, a pandemic. So I think, you know, he's worth listening to. So anyways, this year, he comes out and he says, he wants you to buy gold before January. Well, okay, we've started January. He says, anything below $1,800 is a buy. Sell and short the markets. He predicts another correction this year of 15 to 25% and go defensive, get into more cash and to buy copper and silver on weakness. And uh, he had five market canaries in the coal mine. And he says, if any three of these occur, the risk for a market meltdown is very high. So the first one, do you want me to go through those, Phil? Please, yeah, go through the asset prices. Right. The negatives are inflation. Well, he gave the broader outlook. I mean, I, I can take another step back. He says that there's a movement in the stars called Saturn square Uranus. And traditionally, Saturn, the planet, represents building and preserving, while Uranus, another planet, represents change and destruction. So when Saturn and Uranus form a square, we see cracks appear in the foundations of society. And the problems with our political, financial, and social institutions become exposed. Well, I think we've definitely seen over the past year, financial, political, and social institutions have seen their foundations a little bit cracked. Problems are becoming exposed. So that's happening. And then he says, and then they crumble. So it happened in 1988. Saturn square Uranus happened in 1988. And at that time, the Soviet Union collapsed and the Berlin Wall fell. So he's saying that a lot of the things that were good for the economy and good for the market have sort of petered out, like the central bank is ending its stimulus, central bank and the government is ending stimulus, and the economy that got a boost from COVID-19 vaccines is ending. And um, there's a few you know, benefits on the sidelines, like uh, cash, increasing dividend payouts, and higher share buybacks, but there's a lot of negatives, and those negatives are inflation, President Biden's economic policies, sky-high market valuations, and the effects from the um, COVID-19 pandemic, which is coming back, debt defaults, bankruptcies, and supply chain disruptions. Oh, and record inside selling, which is a nice indicator. If the guys who know what's going on with the businesses are selling, maybe you should consider it. Anyways, he says, buy gold, sell in short markets, and buy copper and silver. And he says, if three of his five market canaries in a coal mine occur, the risk is extremely high. So he says, when the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note rises above 
1.4% to 1.85%, then that's one of them. And currently it is at uh, 1.72. And um, then if the VIX, the CBOE volatility index rises above 26, that's worrisome because that means there's more volatility and more fear in the market. But it's currently at 17. That's not too bad. If Bitcoin falls below 44,000, and it did fall below 44,000 over the past week, actually a couple of weeks ago, and it fell below 40,000 on Monday to 39,800. So today it's at 44,000 again. So, you know, is it hitting resistance going higher? I'm not really sure, but it did hit that mark below 44,000. And then if Rivian Auto, RIVN, falls below 78, but it is now at. Um, 86, so it's close. What's that one, Larry? Rivian Automotive, which I think is an electronic vehicle company. So it, it was 96 when he predicted it. It's now 86. It hit 81 on Monday, so it's bounced back. And he says if it falls to 78, we're in trouble. And then GameStop, uh, if GameStop falls below 100. So when he predicted this, GameStop was at 160. And it's now at 128. So it's definitely falling. And it could fall below 100, but it's not there yet. And finally, gold. He says if it's below 1,800, buy it. So when he predicted this, gold was at 1,788. Now, gold had been at 1,869 on November 17th. And then it fell into December to 1,788. And that was December 21st that uh, Weingarten came out with his prediction. On December 31st, 10 days later, it had already jumped back up to 1827. And then a week ago, it had fallen back down to 1788. And now a week later, it's back up to 1827. So it's definitely volatile. And he says if you can catch it on a down move when there's weakness, then you should buy it. So he thinks gold, especially in the light of inflation, is a very good, very good purchase. And silver, which was at uh, 23 had been at 26. It's now down to 22. says you should buy it between 22 and 23. Hmm. Jeff, you've covered a lot there, and there was just a couple of little eyes I want to pick out of what you just came up with with the list. I know I threw a lot at you. No, that's okay. But the CBOE VIX index, now that's the Chicago Board of Options. Exchange, I think. Exchange, right, yeah. And the VIX is the volatility index. It's the Chicago Board Options Exchange Volatility Index, and they're looking at futures, and that's a measure of fear in the market. And so when markets are benign and stocks are going up, the VIX goes down, I assume. When there's a lot of complacency, the VIX goes down. Okay. And you also talked about record inside selling. How is that measured? You go to companies and you look at the executives have to announce when they're selling their options or they're selling large amounts of stock in their own companies. They have to announce it. And so you just follow those filings either at the SEC or a variety of other websites, and you can see which executives are selling stock in their companies and when. Like uh, Elon Musk just sold a huge amount of stock in Tesla. But these guys have to make a filing months beforehand with the SEC to let them know, I'm going to do this at this date. So these things are not often quick and spontaneous, though some of them can be. Sometimes they just have to do it to diversify their holdings. But if they're doing it outside of those diversifications, it means they think their own stock is peaking and they want to cash out while it's at a high. And you got to figure that the guys who are running the business 
know the status of the business better than anybody else. And if they're selling, that's usually a good indication for you to sell. So you can't actually invest in the astrologer fund. There is no fund, is there? I mean, we're back to a newsletter now, aren't we? No, it's a family office now. I don't want to say it's purely for fun. I mean, like reading the astrology pages, but I thought I'd been writing about a couple of other financial institutions that had come out with these global outlooks. And, you know, stock predicting, economic predicting, any kind of forecasting is essentially, you know, guessing. So it's a glorified form of guessing. So, you know, astrology is... Just as when you put it next to that, how is it any less respectable? I mean, when you're looking at charts and when you're looking at, you know, revenues, but again, anything can happen at any time. I mean, look what happened in March 2020. So, you know, some of these are educated guesses. And I just figured the astrology one was interesting. And he was coming in with an outlook that was a lot different from these other guys. I find Wall Street banks and financial firms, they're always bullish. You never, ever hear them being bearish. You never, ever hear them saying sell or it's time to get out of these markets. And so here was a guy who was being bearish and he was giving indications. He was giving real numbers and he had reasons and he, and he was really pinpointing stuff that I find that a lot of these other guys, you know, it's much more nebulous or ethereal and, and you can't pin them down on too much. And so I liked that. I thought it was an interesting story. And so I put it out there. So we're talking today on January the 12th and the latest inflation numbers have come out and it's a, a seven, I believe. In the US. In the US. That's correct. Yep. Yes. I think that's right. 7%. Just in terms of the inflation concerns. I mean, it seems to me that the market is still seems to go up every day and the inflation is one of the biggest factors, one of the biggest levers on the value of the stock market. And it seems to be being ignored. Is that what you're feeling, seeing? Well, I mean, that's what it looks like today. But, you know, the market had a big jump and it's sort of, by the end of the day, it had fallen into very minor moves upward. I mean, the Dow is up 0.1% and the S&P is up 0.3%. So it's really, you know... But still, you would think that people would start selling with this kind of news, and they didn't. It's very hard to guess where people are going and why they do what they do. And um, supposedly, this should cause the Fed to get more aggressive and tightening, which would be bad for the market. And um, I mean, it's just bad for people in general. It's bad for capital. It's bad for supplies for companies. It's bad for building stuff. Lumber is going up dramatically high. So all these prices are going up. Products are going up. Services are going up. You know, it's going to be a tax on companies. It's a tax on buyers and investors. But, you know, people bought today. I have no understanding of what happened. <laughs> so, Lawrence, how can people find out more about you and follow you on Twitter and um, follow your articles in some of the prestigious journals we've uh, mentioned? I'm on Twitter at Lawrence underscore Carol, C-A-R-R-E-L. I have a page on Forbes where I post all my stories. I post all the stories on Twitter and um, you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn and um, I have a couple of books out, one on ETFs and I have dividend stocks for dummies, investing in dividends for dummies and ETFs for the long run, which explains all about how ETFs work, why they're better than mutual funds and you get a complete history of the industry. Fantastic, Larry. Thank you very much for joining me again and um, hope 2022 is a good year and it's in the stars. <laughs> Thank you very much, Phil. <laughs> it's written in the stars. Actually, it's going to be bad written in the stars by the sounds of things. <laughs> watch out for Saturn. <laughs> yes, watch out for Saturn. 
If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.